We're going to be covering chapter 6 today in, uh, in the book that we've been going through. Uh, I'm going to start by praying for us. If you all would just pray, pray for me as well. Uh, I've had a pretty rough week physically, not feeling super hot. So, um, Lord willing, this will still be clear <laughs> by His grace. It's always by His grace anyway. It's just a good reminder of that. Um, and so hopefully this lesson will be helpful here. So let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Uh, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, come together to think about and uh, apply your word, Lord, in the matters of social justice. God, we come before you and we just ask your blessing. We ask that in the name of Christ, you would help us to understand your word. Lord, bless our time. Please bless our time, God. Um, allow it to be fruitful. Allow us to think about what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, which is the point of this chapter, God. And I pray that we would be able to contrast that against the lack of fruit and the lust of the flesh that is inherent to uh, social justice and the way that it's portrayed today in our society. Well, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, any questions from last week about what we talked about? Last week was the splintering question about things that cause division. And then we ended with an application on personal piety. Okay? Now, this week my plan was <clears throat> to ratchet it up to what I would call marital piety or the piety in the home. But I'm going to do one more lesson on individual piety, and that has to do with our identity in Christ. That's going to be the application portion today. It's very appropriate for what's covered in this chapter. The more I thought about it, um, it this was actually part of chapter 4, but we had some questions at the end of the lesson on chapter 4 that kind of didn't allow me to conclude that lesson or really sum it up in the way that I would have wanted to. So we're going to cover that part today in our application section. And it will have relevance, you'll see, as we go through this. But any questions from last week? Before I get started, open your Bibles to uh, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start by reading God's Word this morning. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Starting in verse 16. We're going to read down through verse 24. It says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, fl for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not wish to do, or so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, this is the fruit question. This is his main question beginning at the, cha- at the beginning of chapter 6. It says, does our vision of social justice replace love, peace, and patience with su- suspicion, division, and rage? <clears throat> Let's take a look at this passage real quick. I want to ask to notice a few things before we really get into the chapter because this is going to help us see the contrast here, which is what he's going to do in the chapters. He's going to try to make a contrast between those three fruits of the Spirit that he laid out there and the three, we might call them fruits of the flesh, but fruit is not a good word. Uh, three lusts of the flesh would be a better word. So, verse 16 in Galatians chapter 5. What two things that are contrasted there? What two things are contrasted there? Simple question. If you look there, what, what, is, what is Paul contrasting in that verse? The walking in the Spirit and the desires of the flesh. Okay? Where, which is the command of the two? Which one does he attach a command to? To walk in the Spirit, Right? So there's a command to do one, and then in light of that, you will avoid doing the other, right? And why is it that you would avoid doing the other? What is the relationship of those two things according to verse 17? Yeah, the flesh is against the spirit. The New King James, which I read from, says that they are contrary to one another. They're contrary to one another. Another word... uh, that he mentioned there from his translation, against one another. They can have no fellowship with each other. You cannot serve both at the same time, right? You cannot simultaneously practice murder, hatred, uh, filling, filling out your own passions in the flesh, and walk in the Spirit. You can't do both at the same time. So as we go through this, it says... Why is, the word, why is the word practice important in this? Why is the word practice important in this? If you look down in verse 21. We're to be doers of the word and not hearers only, according to James. It's James chapter 1. Okay? Think about this for just a moment. Do we still sin as Christians? We do, Right? Do we as Christians make a practice of sin? We shouldn't, correct? If we have the Spirit of God in us, then we cannot live in peace if we are doing that. Now, do Christians have seasons of sin? Yes. Do Christians sometimes have a sin that they continuously struggle against? What's the, di- the answer to that question is yes. What is the difference, though, between someone who practices that sin and won't inherit the kingdom of God in this passage? And a Christian who's struggling with the sin. What's the difference between the two? Somebody try to answer that question. Okay. So he said the answer was that the, a Christian will recognize that whatever it is that they are doing is sin and will eventually come to a place of repentance, right? Does everybody agree with that? 
We see that in the story of David, right, with Bathsheba. He did many things that were heinous, that were against the law of God, broke several commandments, coveting, adultery, stealing another man's wife, murder, yeah, not the least of which, right? But when he was, when he was confronted by a man of God, what happened? He repented. We see that in Psalm 51. You can go read his confession of repentance in Psalm 51. So it's valuable for us to see those things. What I want us to see in this chapter going forward, though, and what I want us to focus on is the difference between people who are of the world and live in the lusts of their flesh as a practice and those who are Christians who are commanded by God to walk in the Spirit according to the law of God. It says this passage, uh, this is what I wrote, this passage is showing us there is such a contrast between the lust of the flesh and the works of the Spirit. They cannot simultaneously coexist. The radical change that the Spirit of God accomplishes in a person who is saved by the work of Christ is so complete, is so complete, that its goal is to literally undo every desire that you have that is contrary to God. To be a new creation is to live, is to have to live not in the lust of our flesh, but is to have to live in, and walk by the Spirit. Okay? It, you must walk by the Spirit. Okay? There, there, it is <clears throat> unavoidable. If you look in verse 24, it says, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does the picture of crucifixion give us? The picture of death, right? So we who were dead in our trespasses and sins now should be dead to those trespasses and sins. Does that make sense? We who were dead in the lusts of our flesh and the passions and desires that we had should now be dead to those things. That's the contrast that we're trying to get to and think about as we enter this chapter. This chapter is actually pretty self-explanatory. If you just read this chapter, it's actually, it's, it's decent. It's, he's got a lot of good stuff. He shows some really important contrasts here. So I'm just going to read through and point out some things that should be very apparent if you were able to read the chapter at all. Page 63, real community. This is the first paragraph on page 63, right under the title of the chapter. Real community, something we lo all long for and were created for, does not come easy. Think of how easily our hearts harbor grudges and assume the worst of others to feel better about ourselves and our clans. That is what our hearts do in their fallen default mode. That is one reason Paul talks so much about schismata, or the sin of divisiveness and why he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. For quick to quarrel, easy to offend, click-forming people, to have any hope of experiencing real community, of gathering, of doing church together, then we need love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control to deal with the other far from perfect people. These fruits must be Spirit-produced. Without the Spirit's fruit, we fall into tribal default mode. We fall into our tribal and default mode. Okay? That's what I tried to illustrate there, is that little bit. That first paragraph is illustrated in Galatians chapter 5 and the contrast there. Any questions about that? In other words, we have to know that for social justice to be overcome in our culture, 
it has to be through the Spirit's revival, okay, in our culture. Okay, and it starts with us in the church. That's why we keep going back to that. It starts with us in the church. We have to live lives according to the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, produce those fruits in our lives in order to call the culture to the same thing. All right. Page 60, <clears throat> flip over one page to page 65 here. Right after this, he gives the example of Corey Tenboom. I would recommend you read that because it is relevant to this discussion. But I'm going to actually go over to page 65 and talk about the contrast that he presents between two African-American or black people, okay, or situations involving black people, because I think it illustrates really well the contrast from Galatians 5. Okay, really well. The first situation is a truly racist situation in which Dylan Roof went into a church in South Carolina and killed, I believe, nine people, if I'm not mistaken, um, in order to incite a race war. Literally why he did it, okay? Honestly, absolutely, in no way, shape, or form is it not anything but a racist act in the way that we would define it. Okay, by any measure that we've used to define racism over any period of time in this country. Okay, now we're going to read a little bit about how these people responded to that, and then we're going to contrast that with a black feminist woman who acts the complete opposite, who every word that she writes is filled with all of those lusts of the flesh that we, we talk about and read, okay? But I just want you to see this, because it's an illustration of the need for spirit-wrought revival. It's the only way we're going to make, make any difference in this. This same kingdom, page 65, it's the third paragraph down. It starts out with this same. It's right above where the quotes are indented. This same kingdom shone through the darkness of Dylan Roof's racist shooting spree that left nine precious black image bearers dead at Emmanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. Roof tried to start a race war, but rather than supplying the reciprocated rage to fuel such a war, those who lost loved ones to Roof's racial hatred responded with forgiveness. There are four quotes here. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Second quote. I've realized that forgiving is so much tougher than holding a grudge. It takes a lot more courage to forgive than it does to say, I'm going to be upset about whatever forever. After seeing how people could forgive... I truly hope that people will see that it wasn't just us saying good words. I know for a fact that it was something greater than us, using us to bring our city together. I would just like him, Dylan Roof, to know that I forgive him, and my family forgives him. But we would like him to make this opportunity or to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess. Give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change him and change your ways. So no matter what happens to you, you'll be okay. I acknowledge, this is the next page, I acknowledge that I am very angry, but one thing that DePayne always enjoined in our family if she taught me that we, is she taught me that we are a family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. 
the last sentence in the paragraph below that. Such grace must be supernatural. It comes from a kingdom not of this world. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit. And couldn't we all use more of that? Okay, so you see that. What is their forgiveness based on? It's based on the command to walk in the Spirit. The Lord commands us to forgive. The Lord commands us to forgive. We are not able to not forgive. We are in danger of judgment, according to the Scriptures, if we fail to forgive. Okay? So we need to understand that as we walk through this. Now, I want you to contrast that against what I'm getting ready to read. Because what I'm getting ready to read is horrible. Um, it really is. If you read the chapter this week, it's awful. But it constitutes the foundational principles, even if it is an extreme example, of critical race theory, of feminist thought. The, this woman is merely following to its logical conclusion the foundational beliefs and presuppositions that she has. That's all she's doing. She's following out what they actually all hold to and believe. It may be the most extreme example, and we can thank God for his restraining grace on other people who believe this way but would not carry it this far. Okay, we can thank God for that. But this is where those principles lead. This is where those principles lead. They can't lead anywhere else because they're based on worship of the, create, of the creature rather than the creator. Okay, they can't lead anywhere else. Okay, right here, Hook's Killing Rage is the title, uh, or the, the, the title of the section on page 66. It says, from a social justice B perspective, things look different than what we just talked about. Contrast Corey Ten Boom and the saints of Charleston's stories with a bit of required reading in many humanities and sociology departments around the West, an essay called Killing Rage. Do you hear that? Required reading. Its author, Gloria Watkins, is better known by her nom de plume, bell, bell hooks. She is a former Yale faculty Distinguished professor of English at City College of New York, hailed as the most prominent exponent of black feminism by the New York Review of Books and a celebrated voice of many social justice be advocates. She coined the term white supremacist capitalist, capitalist patriarchy, a concept that has soared to the status of orthodoxy in activist communities, academia, and much of the church. That is so accurate. Just even if, again, even if, as you read this, you think it's an extreme example, fundamentally there is no difference between what other people who promote this sort of thing believe and what she just out loud says. Okay? It's just like the, there's a recent bill released in Maryland that promotes infanticide. Okay, infanticide is the killing of an infant or allowing the infant to die without medical care, even if they could save the infant's life after birth. They're promoting that in Maryland right now. That is the logical conclusion of everyone who believes that abortion is a human right. There is no difference 
of the human being in the womb or out of the womb, to quote a pastor who recently testified in front of a, a judicial hearing, it is merely a matter of degree, not of personhood. Two to three inches of tissue between that baby and a mother's belly and that baby being outside the mother's belly make no difference to its humanity. And this, this belief, okay, is the logical conclusion of feminism and critical theory at whatever application you want to apply it to. Whether it be race or gender or anything else. Okay, disclaimer. He says this, it would be easy to read what follows, and this is the disclaimer that I just gave, as a personal attack against bell hooks and those who process the world as she does. It is not an attack against her. It really is. I don't understand that sentence because um, it is an attack against her. She's not dissociated from her beliefs in that way. She is a divine image bearer. We want to respect her. We don't hate her, but it is an attack against what she promotes, Okay. Um, he may have meant something different by that. I just don't understand it. <clears throat> Hooks is a divine image bearer of inestimable value. I agree. She has a soul which will reside either in hell if she fails to repent for eternity under the wrath of God or with the Lord Jesus Christ if she believes. Okay? So her soul is of inestimable value. Her beliefs are garbage, are rotten to the core. Okay? All right. So, in a killing rage, the next paragraph, she begins with the line, I am writing this essay sitting beside an, anom an, anon ugh, an anonymous, goodness, I can't say that this morning, white male that I long to murder. Anonymous white male that I long to murder. The impetus for this murderous rage was a seating mix-up on a commercial flight. Hooks takes her first-class seat beside a friend she simply identifies as Kay. The plane intercom requests that Kay, her friend, make her way to the front of the cabin to have her ticket inspected, revealing that her first-class upgrade was not properly processed and she must relocate to coach. Okay, so we're, we're not talking about being kicked off the plane. We're not talking about uh, her having to catch a different flight. We're talking about moving from first class to coach on the same flight. Okay, let's just take that into consideration. Consider this situation. An anonymous white male with the first class ticket replaces K. He apologizes for the inconvenience that he didn't create. That he didn't create. And here's what Bell Hooks has to say. I stare him down with rage. Tell him I do not want to hear his liberal apologies, his repeated insistence that it was not his fault, quote-unquote. I am shouting at him that it is not a question of blame, that the mistake was understandable, but that the way Kay was treated was completely unacceptable, that it reflected both racism and sexism. <clears throat> I let him know that he had an opportunity not to be complicit with racism and sexism. That is so all-pervasive in this society. I felt a, quote, killing rage. I wanted to stab him softly, to shoot him with the gun I wished I had in my purse. And as I watched his pain, literally as he's laying there dying in front of her, I would tenderly say to him, racism hurts. 
as though I were the black nightmare that haunted his dreams. He seemed to be waiting for me to strike, to be the fulfillment of his racist imagination. Notice how she's enjoying this. I leaned toward him with my legal pad and made sure he saw the title written in bold print, quote, Killing Rage. I hope that lands on you real hard. Real hard. Because this is literally be per- being promoted in universities across the United States. And if you don't think it is, I, I, I'm 39 years old. In 2002 or three, I had a sociology professor at Marshall University. Uh, in that class, she claimed that a biblical eunuch was a homosexual and therefore God promoted homosexuality. This is 20 years ago. And she also said that gender was a social construct. This is nothing new. All it's doing now is being promoted from every facet of society. I had a, I had a psychology professor, I think it was cultural psychology, who talked about feminist issues, who gave me a bad grade on a paper that I wrote about God specifically for that reason who told me that truth was subjective unless you agreed with her then it was objective of course and so what I want you guys to see in this though I hope the contrast is very very real for you that the spirit wrought forgiveness of people who legitimately and actually experienced a horrid racist event is entirely different based on an entirely different foundation than these presupposed lenses that this woman uses to take an innocent event produced by a computer machine or a clerk of the airline that caused her to want to murder a man based on his skin color and his gender. These two things can fundamentally have nothing to do with one another. They can fundamentally have nothing to do with one another. John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that, that, that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So if you look back especially at that third quote and think about it, I'm going to rehash this again. Forgiveness and a call to repentance and to know that Christ is the only way out of the mess we are in as a country. The nature of humanity then requires regeneration in order to truly move forward from the examples of bitterness and hate such as what this woman is writing about. This proves that the entire black experience despite what despite what the media will tell you, okay, does not have to be defined by history, even a history that a person has actually experienced, like the people who were in the South Carolina church. 
never mind the fact that we are several generations away from slavery. So even a history that is true, a pain that has been experienced, that Christ supersedes all of that. Okay? All of it. He is the only unifying thing that can shape and mold and rescue this country from where we are right now. We can actually be defined not by our experiences, and you can apply that to whatever experience that you've had in your life. Abuse, rape, incest, whatever experience it is, Christ offers his healing forgiveness to all of those things. He will free you from your bitterness if you let it go. You must give it to him. You have to lay it down in him. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. I hope you guys can see that contrast there. It's striking, I think. Striking. It says in the paragraph below there, beginning with first, he's, he wants to make some points about this. Actually, I'm going to read the paragraph before that. Some may think I have cherry-picked an extreme example to paint social justice be in a bad light. Granted, it is an extreme example. And, of course, we should not picture social justice be proponents sitting around fantasizing about murdering anonymous white men. Murderous rage aside, Bell Hook's personal account of oppression on an airplane is highly instructive if we want to understand the basic categories of social justice be thinking and why it is so divisive. It says, note three aspects of Hooks's account. First, at no point in her narrative does Hooks question whether racism and sexism are the best explanation of hers and Kay's experience. Racism, racism and sexism aren't conclusions that necessarily follow from her experience on the plane, but premises that necessarily frame her experience. See why I went back and talked about our presuppositions at the beginning of this lesson, at the beginning of this series. What you use to frame the events that come through your mind will help you either fall into error or be able to process, process it in terms of truth, in terms of what God says. Your presuppositions matter. Say, could Kay's experience, could Kay's experience, this is the next paragraph down, have been something people of all colors, both and both genders, experience daily? The answer to that question is obviously yes. How many of us have had a mix-up of an order at a at a restaurant, gotten the wrong food, had to sit on hold for 20 minutes only to be hung up on? And granted, that makes me frustrated, but I don't blame it on racism. So. What do, you, what, what, do you, what do you think about your daily experiences? Just because a person has had a life of suffering, that does not grant them the right to blame everyone they come into contact with and every experience that they have on those pieces of suffering in their life. They cannot use those lenses. Those are not godly lenses. That does not mean that God does not meet us where we are at and offer comfort to us 
in the things that we suffer. It does mean that those cannot be used as an identity through which we process everything that happens in our life. You know this instinctively, especially people who are parents who have very young children. When your child throws a fit about the smallest thing in the world, what's wrong with that picture? The picture is their perception of the event. That's what's wrong. It's that they're a sinner and that they have used their perception of the event and of that thing, and they have made that very desire their identity in that moment. Now, we do the same thing as adults. We do the same thing. It's just they're bigger problems, bigger issues applied in different ways. We have the same tendencies. What do you want to teach that child? You don't just want to correct the behavior. You want to teach them to think about why they had the behavior. Your goal is not to just squash them. Your goal is to what? Teach them self-control. Teach them to master their own wills. By what? By God's word. It's the same thing for us. God requires of us as his children to do and pursue the same things. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. It's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Now, page 69, first full paragraph. This leads to a fourth and final point we can draw from Hook's killing rage. I would encourage you to go back and read the other points he makes, but time's sake, so on and so forth, we've got to keep moving. This leads to a fourth and final point we can draw from Hook's killing rage. Nowhere in the essay does she turn from criticizing the assumed motives of those around her to question her own heart. This is a hallmark of social justice. This is a hallmark of social justice. Everyone else's fault, never my fault. I cannot be questioned because I, in my own mind, perceive the true nature of what truth is and how it should apply to everything and everyone around me. That is what is called, when you hear the term thrown around, standpoint epistemology. How do I know what I know? I know it because I feel it. It is completely subjective, and this is why they argue amongst themselves. Take, for instance, Will Thomas, also known as Leah Thomas, who is a male posing as a female in women's sports currently. He's not a female. He never will be a female. He is a male, period. His name is Will. It is not Leah. Okay? What are people doing about that? Look at feminists and the proponents of transgenderism. They're arguing with each other. Why are they arguing with each other? Well, he's stealing the glory of a female who worked hard. Well, he is, and they're correct about that. But how does the feminist have any right to say what is and isn't true in that situation any more than the person who advocates for transgenderism? They don't. It's completely subjective. Unless we come to a place as a society and as a church first where we believe that the word of God in every single area that it speaks is accurate, true, and that we are accountable to it, and so is everyone else around us, we cannot 
hope to speak into these things. The worldviews are fundamentally different. They are fundamentally opposed to each other. Okay? Fundamentally different. That doesn't mean there's no hope. I was converted. You were converted. I was 18. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Had no idea of God. Was baptized in a Mormon church. Completely different religion. Was a Christmas Easter pagan. God can save anyone. God does do miracles every day that he regenerates hearts. We have to believe that as a church, as people who are Christians who claim the name of Christ. All right, application section. Flip back to Galatians chapter 3. I've kind of set, cut, touched on a lot of this, but I want to do a summary of it. So we've seen the idea of identity here, right? Identity. We've had two instances or two examples of black people who have perceived situations in entirely different ways. If anything, the woman, if we were talking about worldly standards, the woman who wrote the paper Killing Rage would have been justified, uh, is less justified than the others to write that paper after those people experienced actual murder of their relatives and loved ones. You see the contrast there? Two different things. So what must we do? Galatians chapter 3, verses 20, um, 26 through 29. Let me flip back here. 26 through 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's a spiritual baptism of faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are heir, Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So there are three things that are assumed in this. This will be our application section. Three things. The first one is sin. It has to be assumed here. Because you cannot know Christ savingly if you do not know what you are being saved from. If you have no idea of what it means to be a sinner, then you have no idea to what, uh, what it means to be saved from that sin. This is basic evangelism in that way. We have forfeited the law of God, and we only want to talk about the love of Christ, but Christ died under the wrath of God according to the law on our behalf, to display his love for us in that way. Sin must be confronted in our own lives as we walk in obedience of the Spirit and in the culture whenever you meet people. doesn't mean you have to be belligerent to them. It does mean that you can say sin is sin. If the Bible calls it a sin, it's a sin, and it is condemning them. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You cannot be a bitter, malicious, murdering person if you understand this. Because Christ not only extends his forgiveness to you in this way, he also extends it to the person who wronged you if they believe. You have no right to hold that grudge. 
He forgives them even if you don't. The second thing is obviously belief in Christ. Right? That's, it. That's explicit right here in the text. So first thing is three ways we have to think about this. Sin levels the playing field, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Second thing is Christ is necessary. Is necessary for us to live a, tr- a life of true humanity, of true justice, because only in Christ are we conformed to what we were actually meant to be in the image of God. Every personality trait, every thought, every desire conformed unto obedience in him. He's necessary. 1 John 1, 9 through 2, 2 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is, our, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Christ is the one redeemer of God's elect. He declares those souls forgiven if they believe in him. And we have no right to withhold what Christ purchased with his own blood from others. We have no right to do that. There is room to call others to repent when they sin and wrong us, but there is no room to hold it against them. The third thing is a new and obedient life a new and obedient life as Christians. This is what our identity is wrapped up in. It's wrapped up in the fact that we are sinners, that more than that, Christ died for us, and that now he, in, that, in light of that, in light of his regenerating work, the new heart that he has placed within us, the new creation that you are, he has called you to live differently. Walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5. Walk in the Spirit. This is what 1 John 5, 3 says. For this, <clears throat> for this is the love of God. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Prior to Christ, they are condemnation. They are a weight. They are a tutor that is meant to point you to your need for him. Okay? After Christ, they are a joy. They are sweeter than honey. They are perfect and pure and righteous and good for us in every way they can possibly be construed. That's what the Psalms tell us. We live too often as though God's standard of holiness is what it was before we knew Christ. It was condemnation for us without Jesus, but in Christ, he gives us the power to live a godly life, and he calls us to not only do that, but to learn to delight in them, in those things, because his commands are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. We are all called then, non-believer and believer, to the same standard of holiness. 
It functions differently, but we're called to the same standard of holiness. It functions as condemnation for those who try to earn their way to heaven or disregard Christ's righteousness, but it functions as a delight for us, or at least it should. There are no two standards of righteousness, one for the unbeliever and one for the righteous. And those who are new creations in Christ have their affections, must have their affections trained by this. Obedience to God's commands, which include to forgive, is not a burden, but now should be a joy as you are conformed to the image of your Savior. That's our identity. That's our identity. And I hope you see how this relates to exactly what we're talking about today. One person is caught up in the fundamental identity of them being a creature and making the creature, their feelings, a god. It can only lead to destruction. The other person, the other people who truly experienced in, a, in that particular situation of the shooting in South Carolina, heartache and horrid things. I mean, they watched their loved ones die in front of them. Were able to forgive. I wrote this on Facebook after the George, George Floyd uh, incident. And I realized that there's a lot of different feelings about this particular incident. But I want you to listen to it and think about the principle behind it. I may not write it exactly the same way, but the principle still stands. Okay? It says our, I said, our humanity is only defined correctly by a few things. Our God and his law, that we are created to bear his image, that our rebellion and the breaking of his law, and then our need for and the offer of reconciliation and forgiveness in Christ. I read a quote the other day that says, No Christ, no peace. No Christ, no peace. N-O, no Christ. N-O, no peace. K-N-O-W, no Christ. Then no peace. Until all people can come to a place of realizing the objective nature of sin, there can be no objective push toward reconciliation. Subjective justice, killing a man with your knee on his neck, or looting and beating business owners will only push us away from the reconciliation we need and continues to disfigure the image we bear. It's only when one realizes that he's no better than another man that he can forgive, and only when a man realizes he's no better than another man that he will practice justice toward every man. True justice requires truth and requires Christ. True justice can only require those things. You can't do it any other way. He recognizes in this chapter and a few of his sentences that the only way out of this, the only way out of where we are now, okay, is by the fruit of the Spirit. And what does that come through? It comes through regenerated hearts who have faith, who call others to the same things. Jesus can heal. Okay? Any questions? Hmm? Okay. Okay.
recognized it. Yeah. That first story about. Yeah. It takes a lot to forgive when you're hurt. It takes a lot to forgive when you're hurt. I think uh, the beginning of this chapter, I didn't read her example because I thought that the contrast between uh, one black experience and another was the most important thing in the chapter, but it mentions Corey Tinboom and the fact that she watched her uh, sister die by the hands of a Nazi guard and that he had accepted Christ and asked for her forgiveness. That takes courage on two parts. To know you participated in the death of this woman's sister and to have enough gall and belief in Christ to ask for her forgiveness. We could all use more of that courage. And then we could also use the courage that Corey Tinboom displayed in shaking the man's hand and forgiving him. So, all right, let me pray for us and then we'll be done. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together. Uh, thank you for just being good and gracious to us and thank you for your word. I pray that we would think about these things, uh, that we would examine our own hearts, Lord, both in the way that we need to forgive others and that we need to call others to receive forgiveness in Christ. I uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've